Hey everyone, it's Rebecca. You're listening to Superwomen. Before we get into this week's episode, I just wanted to do some shameless plugging. So if you haven't bought the handbag or an incredibly appropriate Zoom sweatshirt, aka our best-selling Janine, head over to my site. This podcast is brought to you by the support of you. So would love for you to buy some gifts, enjoy some of our sales that we're having, and just support the cause and the brand that floats this podcast. Also, I'm not sure if you've heard, but I launched a fragrance. It is available at Macy's and Nordstrom and Birchbox and Scentbird. So I highly, highly advise you smell good from the comfort of your bed or living room. Hey everyone, welcome to Superwomen. Today's guest is Camilla Marcus, the founder of Westbourne, where if you live in New York City, you have eaten there and it is delicious, I can attest. Uh, but she's much more than just the founder and creator of Westbourne and we're going to get into it. So welcome, Camilla. Thank you so much for having me. So I would love to start with your history and your desire to get into the culinary world and where, where did that stem from? I've really always been in love with food really since I was a kid, which is funny because it was not really a core passion of anyone in my family. I was sort of the strange one at a very young age. Um, my dad worked in Japan most of my childhood and I'm born and raised in Los Angeles. And, you know, we were going down to little Tokyo before, you know, Japanese cuisine was really proliferated across the States and demanding and, and begging for, you know, the weirdest that they had on hand. And, just was always very adventurous in food and loved every detail that went into the experience and how much of a culture share really dining out is and and gathering around a table and how much, you know, that's just a centerpiece of our lives. So I really had a passion for it as a very young age, always was cooking when I was young and right after college went to culinary school in New York. So, you know, I think I always knew in the back of my mind, it was something I was super passionate about and could see how, how important it was, you know, right to our families, our culture, our society, our economy, and how much impact there could be when you really touch sort of every facet of someone's daily life in a really unique way. And when I went to culinary school, I think the light bulb sort of went off. You know, I found my people. I mean, it was just people I really enjoyed being around, no matter how grueling the hours, how physically exhausting, being in the kitchen was some of my, you know, happiest moments. And I don't know that I knew exactly what I wanted to do in, you know, in the industry, so to speak, at that time. But I always say, I mean, look, you spend more of your time with the people you work with than your own family. And so I do think you know, chosen careers really revolve probably first and foremost, at least for me, around, you know, people. And I think people in restaurants and people in food are so authentic and empathetic and real and hardworking and caring and creative and hustling and generous and just all the things that really sort of filled my heart. And and I think that really clicked, like I said, when I went to culinary school. So often the culinary world is viewed as cutthroat, male dominated. How did you sort of get in and stand out and not get intimidated by, you know, maybe from the outside, that's what you hear. And it's not really like that. But, you know, talking to Eden and some other some other women, they're like, oh, it's, you know, they had their experiences, to say the least. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You know, I grew up in a mostly male household. I have two older brothers. <laughs> so I feel like as a young, you know, from a young age, probably more gender bending and and less heeding to sort of gender norms and all of that, you know, probably a little differently. I mean, like I shared a room with my brother my whole life, which is 
who's four years older, and that's obviously highly unusual. So I think coming into it, I definitely had eyes wide open. I didn't expect it to be something different. And, you know, I sort of treated it a little bit like how I approach my brothers in a very male-charged household. I think I really just got fortunate. I mean, look, there is intensity. I've had very aggressive moments in kitchens, especially in culinary school. And, you know, a chef would get in your face with a knife and yell, and I would always laugh, you know, and that would only make them angrier. (laughs) I would just say, look, you know, I totally get it, but we're also talking about soup. Like you're sitting here threatening me and I'm going to fix it. You don't need to threaten me. So I always felt like I think my approach was sort of using disarming humor and kind of trying to also remind myself, yes, this is important, but we're also talking about a carrot. Like we also have to be able to pick our head up and say, okay, that does not warrant wanting to stab someone, right? That doesn't make any sense. From an industry standpoint, I think we have a huge way to go. I think that, you know, media media still focuses on men, especially male chefs and restaurant owners. I think that's evolved a little bit over the last 10 to five years, but I think we still need far more women in positions of power who are running the finances and owning the businesses. And I think that's, you know, a huge, huge area of of improvement. But, you know, when I worked, I worked for Danny Meyer as head of business development. And, you know, I'd go to meetings and people, my last name being Marcus, you know, people would say, Oh, no, we're, we're meeting Marcus. And I'm like, well, no, my name's Camilla. And that's my last name. And they're like, Oh, are you Danny's assistant? And I'm like, why would Danny's assistant be in a lease negotiation? Like, explain, you know, and, and you've been emailing with me. So you've seen my title and what? So there's definitely a lot of that. And and I think it hit me probably the hardest. When I opened Westbourne, you know, a lot of media really pushed hard on, well, she's not on the line and in the kitchen 24-7. And, you know, my answer is most most chefs who run their businesses can't be, right? Like, how are you supposed to be on the line 24-7 and, you know, running the business, growing the business and, and overseeing everything. Like it's humanly impossible. And especially if you have a family and children, which adds my son's one, and that adds an entirely new layer of complexity and demand. But I do think the industry has a long way to go. I myself was very lucky to never, you know, I've heard the stories. I know many people who have had pretty rough, you know, and brutal experiences in the industry I think I just happened to sort of be lucky in who I worked with and who I worked for. And I just never had, you know, it wasn't like easy going, but it was not illegal, inappropriate, life-threatening, you know, in the way that it can be. So I do think there's, I do think there's certainly an industry underbelly that has a long way to go of seeing the light. I mean, I don't know if you've been following, but the Court of Master Sommeliers has had obviously a massive scandal on earth that's, you know, years and years and years long. And, and I do think things are changing because people are getting braver and speaking out. And I think the industry is collectively trying to change, you know, the old ways, because this generation doesn't even tolerate being yelled at, you know, it just isn't the way that they're taught that, you know, work brings you meaning. And I actually think it's, it's such a breath of fresh air to bring sort of that new approach. And, and I do think that generation not having tolerance for the ways of the past of this industry is important to move it forward. Yeah, I definitely, I don't know. I mean, if you and I are anomalies, but I had two older brothers. So I feel like I've never been <laughs> intimidated by a man in that way because I had to grow up with, you know, whatever happens in, in a two older brother household. Totally. 
my brother also taught me a lot about sort of protecting myself and thinking ahead. You know, he was like, don't be at the restaurant at three in the morning alone with a male chef, like, or have a friend come by or have, you know, I was married very young. So like a lot of times, you know, my husband would wait outside and walk me home late at night, or he would come by and like, whatever, he'd do what he had to do on his phone or, you know, come by for a drink. You know, I do think also, and it's sad, it shouldn't be that way. I mean, I will be upfront and saying, I don't think that the answer is a woman has to protect herself. But unfortunately, we do still live in a world like that. And so I, I definitely played offense as well as defense. And a lot of that came from my brother teaching me that at a very young age, you know, and sort of giving it to me straight. I mean, I don't know if your brothers did that for you. But you know, even physical self defense, like my brother taught me to fight at a very young age. He was like, I hope you don't ever need to use this. But in case you do, you should have it, you know, in your toolkit. Yeah, for sure. I had a very mean brother growing up. Ironically, it's who I work with now. (laughs) But I think that that gave me an incredibly thick skin when I was little. And then my mom was like, I'm going to teach you to be tough because you have two older brothers. And so she really, you know, there was not a lot of coddling in the household and not a lot of you can't do this. You're a girl or you're different. And I think that made a huge difference. Totally. I played baseball when I was younger. I'll never forget on a boys league. And you know, always wanted to do what my brothers were doing. And I do think that helped sort of change my mindset against, you know, not seeing the barriers to your point and being okay with being a little bit more rough and tumble. And I do think that that has such a long lasting psychological effect. Oh, completely. So speaking of psychological effects, at what point did you know, okay, I'm ready to leave, I'm going to start my own thing. And, and not only am I going to start it, but I'm going to do it differently. I'm going to, I mean, I want you to get into this and explain it more, but you didn't just have people come in and be at the level they thought they were, you know, and trained for, right? Everyone came in equal. There were no dishwashers, no porters. Will you kind of go into, okay, I'm ready to leave that thought process and then how do you <laughs> want to structure it? Yeah. I mean, look, I always say in some ways I... I feel very much like the reluctant entrepreneur. I mean, I my dad's an entrepreneur, but he didn't start his company until very later in life, almost around 50. And I kept wanting to find, it sort of felt like Goldilocks. You know, I was really ready to find that place and a boss that said to me, you know what, you're my person, you're my right hand, you know, let's go to the moon together. And it just never really happened. And, you know, I think my experience working with Danny Meyer and his team was such a lesson in you do idolize certain companies and brands and people, but the world is ever changing. And, you know, one of the things there that struck me was, you know, it was a 30 year old company. We celebrated 30 years while I was there. And it started to really set in of, oh, there's so much that could be different in this business. And I see things and I've experienced things so differently just by age, place, and timing of what's happening in our industry, which now is changing even more so because of COVID. And just realizing, you know, I think like a speedboat, you know, I'm very, I'm a very flexible thinker. I'm very quick to iterate. You know, I like to experiment and try things. And I think we're taught that larger companies and more established brands you know, they're safe, right? But I think if you are someone who is out of the box and trying to challenge the status quo and trying to also provide, you know, an answer and a compliment to what's happening in the larger context of the world and your generation, it's hard to do that at a bigger plate. I think I started, that started to really percolate. And then I ended up working on a consulting project through the company 
that was somewhat in this sort of conscious capitalism meets food space. And I became obsessed with the project and sort of everyone in my life was like, you know, you talk a lot about this like very small project. That's a very small part of your job, you know, quite a lot. Maybe you should think about that. Like you don't seem to talk about the rest of your day, which is probably 99% of where you spend your time. And I thought, okay, I guess you're right. So I really just decided to take the leap of faith thinking, you know, I didn't have kids at the time and I don't know. I think just the place in my life felt like, okay, if I take this risk and I fall on my face, it's not such a not such a scary or big deal and didn't feel like so far to fall. So when I left, it was really all about, you know, you think about conscious capitalism and I'm sure you know this better than anyone cuz retail and fashion really have led the wave over the last decade and thinking about the fact that you probably spend more money and more time making decisions around what you eat and drink in your daily life than anything else. And no hospitality or food brand really stood for that, right? You know, you think of so many amazing apparel brands that are all about, you know, impacting their neighborhood, impacting the environment, thinking about sustainability, and yet, you know, where you're getting your coffee four days, you know, four times a day, you know, that sort of goes out the window a little bit. And so I started thinking a lot about that. And then, and then also thinking about my own experience in the industry, which was, I'm a generalist, I always have been, I mean, I, I went to business school undergrad, but I applied to that school with a full art portfolio. I mean, I, I was a drawer and painter when I was younger, and, you know, always had multiple weird competing and strange interests, and even to this day feel that way. And, and our industry is so hierarchical. It's very tracked. It's very structured. It's like a boot camp. I mean, in some weeks it was always sort of similar to the military, right? You know, you have the head chef there in charge, don't question them. And then everyone has their rank and file. And that is so the opposite of everything in my bones and my personality. So when I when I was going through my career in different phases, I, you know, I kept bumping up against that wall like even at USHG, I would want to do a wine course and I kept getting asked, well, but you work in business development in the corporate office. You're not on the SOM track. I'm like, I, I don't understand. Like I'm part of the people who work here. I don't get why I can't go to that wine tasting or why, you know, I don't really want a wine certification, but I'm passionate about wine. And it felt so much like so many doors and windows were locked. And it was sort of like, if you're not on that track, you don't get to go there. And it seemed strange. And then I also, you know, and it frustrated me personally. But then I also would see in the company, a lot of people would leave because, you know, we had multiple people who were line cooks or sous chefs who wanted to get into wine. And they said, I have to go to another company because I can't get on the wine team here. And I said, well, I don't think so. What do you mean? That seems impossible. Like a great person, a great talent and someone who fits the company culture, I'd rather retrain them in something else and keep them than have them go to another restaurant or restaurant group. Maybe it's generational and and personal, but it seemed foolish to me, really inefficient, didn't make sense. And also I could see that we were losing great talent as a result. So when I started Westbourne, I had this radical idea of, you know, just a much more collective team structure. So everyone comes in at the same level, as you said, no porters, no dishwashers. Everyone rotates through different positions over time. You know, we focus very heavily on training through internal, but also external. And it's interesting in COVID seeing how many businesses have actually, I mean, and all my friends in the industry told me I was crazy and no one would want to work for me. And that system is insane. And no one else does that. 
But what we saw was we were able to internally develop people way faster, way fuller. And even when people would leave and discover, you know, that they could actually be on a different track. For me, it was super rewarding to see that potential unlocked. It's interesting now to see with COVID, you know, the whole system just got blown up since March, obviously, when we came to a halt and have been closed. And for the first time I'm hearing friends go, yeah, you know, like, I had a line cook pack a to go order. And it was like, so much more efficient. And I can't believe they never did that before. And, you know, I'm sort of laughing on the phone going, well, welcome to the new world. And I think you're going to see a lot more of our model proliferating the industry and the system, frankly, as a as a necessity through COVID and post COVID. You obviously, and I'm sure it was horrific, had to close due to the pandemic. And I remember I, I would joke with my husband when we bought our first apartment, like, you know, this will this will be valuable forever because unless an atomic bomb hits New York City, we're good. You know, <laughs> and I think I, I would have never predicted the mass exodus out of New York, the restaurant closings, you know, Broadway, like every single area fashion decimated. What was that like for you? And what are you how have you sort of dealt with that? You know, it was interesting because even from really before the shutdown, I sort of had seen the tea leaves changing and I could see not the full picture of of what was coming, but a little bit. I mean, I had friends in Seattle and Milan. And so I was getting sort of real time texts and images from friends. So, you know, I didn't really just rely obviously on the news and on what the governor and the mayor were saying, which was very confusing. And, you know, I was telling my team regularly, I mean, we were meeting daily and weekly. And I was trying to sort of give them a glimpse of what was coming so that it wasn't also sudden. And through the summer, you know, I kept telling my team, this is going to come down to our landlord negotiating and I'm doing my best and I'm playing the best game of chicken I know how, but ultimately it's not really my decision if he won't sort of come to Jesus and renegotiate our lease to be something that gives us breathing room for what's going to be a 12 to 18 month recovery, if not longer we just can't sit in a space that doesn't work for COVID, you know, bleeding cash. Like it just does not make sense and it's not fair to anyone. And, you know, even though I said it and we knew it and we all were open eyes, right? Like it doesn't prepare you for what actually happens. And so it became very clear in August that our landlord was telling me things like he thinks everything will be back to normal in December. And I was like, dude, we're going to have another wave in December. Like, what are you talking, you know, you are smoking something like I, I can't, I can't even negotiate with someone who is this irrational. Like it's wild and hard to believe that a very educated, experienced person like is not understanding what's happening. So when we eventually made the call, it was hard. I mean, it it was so crazy to know that we had been talking about it. We had been preparing for multiple scenarios. We all were sort of looking down, you know, the, the mouth of the dragon, but when you're actually there and you have to do it, I mean, it's the most heart-wrenching experience you can imagine. I mean, first and foremost, losing our team. I mean, we had 30 people, as I said, in March. We're down to three now. And, you know, like I said, I got into this business for people. I got into it to develop people, to provide opportunity for them, to provide a home away from home. And that was really the most painful part was feeling that I really let them down and I, I disappointed them and and left them without a paddle, you know, in in the wake of such a crisis. And that weighed on me intensely, intensely day in and day out and still does. And, you know, I'm grateful for our team for all that they did to smooth this out and to be there for one another. We set up sort of 
smaller support groups so that everyone could go through the unemployment process with guidance and help and, you know, not sort of be alone through this. It's obviously a very isolating experience, but, you know, I'm really not a crier. I'm someone, I always say I give myself 24 hours to grieve and then I put it away and move forward. This took a lot longer. And honestly, I mean, I like locked myself in my room. I have a young son and, you know, I told my husband, I was like, I cannot stop crying and he can't see me like this. And, you know, he can't make sense of what's happening and I don't want to scare him. So I'm like, just leave me in my room for a couple of days. Like truly. And I'm so not that person. And I, it hit me like a tidal wave a lot harder and more intensely than I even could have mentally prepared for. And, and on the flip side too, was reading all of the amazing, amazing feedback and comments and people sharing memories they had and I mean, we had such an outpouring of beautiful messages and emails and Instagram posts and and notes and calls and and then that just doubles down you know, on the waterworks of feeling grateful, grateful and you know grateful that you know you weren't invisible and that you did matter to people's lives and and that you did have you know at least some level of the impact that you set out to do. But that was probably the hardest week I think I've ever experienced and. What most people didn't know at the time was I was seven weeks pregnant doing IVF. So I was like pumped with hormones, feeling very disjointed and physically very, very (laughs) beaten down and not myself. And then all of this sort of tidal wave on top of it. Like I said, I'm a pretty sort of even keel. My team will tell you I'm a very sunny side of the street kind of person. And it was like being in, you know, an alternate universe, just totally not myself in in pretty much every single way. But, you know, I think at the other side of it, I always dreamed something bigger for Westbourne and my team always knew that. And I always talked about that. And in fact, this past year, 2020 was supposed to be, you know, after two years of sort of getting, I mean, you know, cause you've run your own business first two years is sort of like, okay, jumped in the pool. What the fuck? How do I swim? Once you start to swim, then you decide, okay, how big is the pool? Where is it going? How many pools do we want? Who's getting in? You know, and that was totally halted on March 15th. So where we are now is really just saying, okay, you know, this part of the dream, it didn't go the way we wanted it to go. It was sort of taken from us, you know, hugely out of our control, but that shouldn't stop us from recentering on the bigger dream, reorienting how we're going to get there we're in a new era in 2021 and beyond. And I'm grateful for our three team members that we have left. They are my rocks and all three have been with me since the beginning. So I'm grateful for that and and back on the sunny side, but it was September was a a deeply, deeply painful month. Not going to sugarcoat it, closing anything and you can't not help but feel like a failure and letting them down. 100%. We we had to do our layoffs in March and I was crying like you and my kids were looking at me like, did you and daddy get in a fight? And I, I was trying to explain it to them. No, we just let go of like 25 people. Well, especially when you know, I mean, layoffs and letting people go is always brutal. But when you know you're sort of leaving them off in the wilderness, it's even worse, you know, and something that you can't help, you can't control, but it's it still hurts worse, right? You know, you're not letting them out into a world that's like hiring and people are out and about and okay, they'll get a job in the next month or I can help them. You know, most people who leave, you know, or are trying to do something different or moving, I've always helped them get jobs. I mean, I'm lucky to have a network where I can do that and to not even be able to do that was, you know, I mean, again, you, you lived it too, I'm sure. Oh yeah, for sure.
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hey everyone, it's Rebecca. I want to take a quick break to chat with you about my book, which comes out June 15th, entitled Fearless, The New Rules for Unlocking Creativity, Courage, and Success. I wrote this book for you, my listeners who might be considering different paths, trying to find ways to innovate, in general, seeking a road that maybe hasn't been traveled. So over the last 15 years, I've learned so much. I have failed so much. The one thing that I've consistently done is when I was scared, I did it anyway. So I want to encourage you to buy the book. Please pre-order it. It actually truly helps an author when you pre-order, especially right now with so many stores not ordering inventory and uh, needing pre-orders to ensure the sales. So you can go to Amazon, look for Fearless, Rebecca Minkoff. You can go to Books A Million, which has an incredible list of independent bookstores. Buy the book. And the good news is, is if you buy the book and email me, fearless at rebeccaminkoff.com with your receipt, you get the cost of the book as a credit applied to whatever you buy on my site. So it's a win-win. Buy the book. It's called Fearless unlocking the new rules for creativity, courage, and success. At what point did you start Roar? What is your plan or vision for helping any anything that's left survive? So Roar, and which is relief opportunities for all restaurants in New York, as well as the Independent Restaurant Coalition, which is a nationwide advocacy group, both were started on March 15th and really rose out of seeing the pandemic really just rip open all the vulnerabilities in our industry and realizing very quickly that no level of government, and frankly, I'd say the general public too, really didn't understand what was happening for independent restaurants specifically and how supremely hard we were going to be hit. You know, we were really at the eye of the storm and very vulnerable as such and affected so many people. I mean, we're the second largest employer in the country. We employ more people in New York State than airlines do nationwide. Almost a million people in New York work in restaurants. Wow. So when overnight everything came to a halt, we started realizing, wait, millions of people are going to be unemployed. You know, this massive industry is getting crushed and 
we don't have any representation. Our people are not being thought of. So Roar specifically in New York, we started first and foremost, our, our first objective, which we worked, I mean, round the clock for 14 days to get up and running was a cash assistance program in partnership with Robin Hood. So I worked with Robin Hood at Westbourne. And before that, they were our, our charitable partner. We gave one, we still do give 1% of every purchase to Robin Hood to support job training for youth in New York and, and job opportunities. And they were my first call. And I said, look, if all the, you know, you just said a lot of people were being laid off, frankly, right at the shutdown. And I said, what is going to happen? Think about the kinds of people, the levels that we employ, right? We're one of the few industries where there's a real zero barrier to entry job. Like you don't have to have any experience. You don't have to have gone to college and have to go to high school. That's a huge portion of our, our team makeups across the country and especially in New York. 10% of restaurants in the country are located in New York. You know, we called them and said, we're very concerned. All these people are going to be unemployed. Unemployment checks aren't going to be issued for weeks. They're stuck at home. They can't do other work. You can't work from home in restaurants. How are they going to pay rent? How are they going to get groceries? How are they going to provide for their families? We need to get cash in their hands now. You know, traditional relief of going to a pantry, going to, you know, support services. None of that is possible when you have a stay-at-home order, right? So interestingly, cash assistance is incredibly difficult, very high compliance, especially in a crisis. There's even higher scrutiny. Um, but thanks to you know Robinhood, who has such vast experience, we were able to put something together. So to date, we've raised over $2.5 million. It's $500 one-time cash grants. They're issued weekly and you know with a very, very tight turnaround. And the goal was really, like I said, to put cash in people's pockets for necessities you know, while they're stuck at home and unable to get alternative employment. So that was our first and foremost effort. And then we do quite a bit of advocacy at the city and state level. You know, the restaurant industry still, as of today, you know, we're 10 months into this crisis, we have not received any level of industry-specific aid, restructuring, or financial help from any level of government. Despite the fact that one in four people unemployed comes from our business, we have been one of the few industries fully shut down more than once. And again, the largest private employer in the country um, with such a vast social, cultural, and economic presence, it's it's pretty shocking to sit here today and still say that we still have a long road and we have not been seen or taken care of, frankly, by, by cities, states, or the federal government. I'm not afraid to say it, but this is why I can't wait for de Blasio to be out of there. And <laughs> it's, it's disgusting. It's almost like you think that the people at the top almost want this to fail because if they actually wanted to do anything about it, they would focus on it. They can focus on having the, the the military at the airport making you sign your goddamn paper when you enter, but they can't figure out how to make sure that like the million people that are employed get taken care of. It's it's disgusting. It is, and our system isn't very is an evolutionary one. It just is. It's set up that way. It's frankly probably intended to be that way. And this is just one of those situations where, you know, the restaurant industry has never been considered a major industry by this nation, frankly. And I think the public didn't even know it until this crisis, how many people and how big of a business we were. We've always been lumped into small business services, which is ridiculous when you think about a million people in New York. You know, next to healthcare, we are the largest industry. That doesn't belong being overseen by, you know, the SBA or the SBS. That that really makes no sense. But the problem is that's where 
you know, we just, we never had a real lobbying force. We've never invested in, you know, as an industry, we've never really had that leverage, that presence and that pre-existing relationships that, you know, say the airlines have, right? I mean, they've been donating forever, even, even when it comes to data and research, that's one of our biggest gaps, you know, the airline industry paid millions in March for research studies so that they could show that flying was safe, even though they paid for that research. But that's why they got to stay open, you know, and they've received two bailouts already in the last 10 months, despite the fact that they're public companies and can raise capital on their own. The March bailout was in the exact, I think it was almost the exact amount of stock buybacks that was conducted by executives the year before. I mean, that's criminal and ridiculous. And they've shown very clearly that airlines have capital reserves to take them all the way through 2022. So to your point, I mean, yeah, it's it's crooked. And it's because they have a precedent. They've been bailed out before. They have those tentacles across decision makers, you know, in Washington and at the state and city level. You know, the amount of people have said to me, oh, yeah, but they're like a public good. I mean, they're necessary. I go, you think flying's necessary? No one even flew in the 50s. What are you talking about? <laughs> Eating is necessary. Like, we're going to talk about a public good. I mean, that's the dumbest argument I've ever heard. It's multi-front, right? I mean, we're facing so many things at once. And I, and I said in March, the worst thing to ever happen to this country is this being an election year. It was just unfortunate timing because that already has... And especially this one, you know, such a destabilizing element. And for lawmakers, you know, that just adds a whole element of why am I going to stick my neck out if I'm I have to worry about my election come November? That's a problem when you're in a crisis and you need bold action and you need to try things that have never been done when you're facing an unprecedented shitstorm, right? Like the old playbook is not going to work in this circumstance, but you have people who are very concerned about taking a risk because of the election. So it was, I keep saying, you know, with the restaurants, it's sort of been the perfect storm, especially in a place like New York. We've been hit so hard by the pandemic. You know, everyone lives on top of each other. You rely on public transportation. You know, the weather is so intense. All of those combined with being the most expensive place to live, most expensive place to do business. It's the perfect storm. A hundred percent. So now that we're all depressed, (laughs) what can people do to support? Like, where can they give their money? Where can they get involved so that this, you know, when these people get their heads out of their ass and reopen restaurants, it can come back? Well, I mean, if you want to support the fund, you can go to RoarNewYork.org. You can donate right on the page. We've worked with a lot of brands that have done incredible partnerships that have raised tremendous money to help people in New York, as I said, who aren't being helped otherwise. This is the time to get loud. This is the time to be contacting your lawmakers. I mean, I know that that sounds so frustrating to people, but the truth is public sentiment matters. I mean, you've seen when people protest, like gyms filed a lawsuit and all of a sudden they were allowed to open, you know, and someone protests and all of a sudden, you know, the mayor and the governor change everything that they were doing. So public sentiment and public pressure actually does work. And then third is contact your local restaurants, find out how you can help them, you know, order directly from them. If you're working on something with your business, see if you can integrate a restaurant or a food brand into it. I mean, there's so many ways to help if you sort of take every day and say, okay, what can I do for them? If you're not sure, ask them, call your favorite restaurant, ask for the owner's number. I promise you every single restaurant and every single group has something on their mind that I'm sure every person could help with. And I think as a collective, it's about 
keep beating the drum, keep reposting from Roar and the IRC, keep sharing that we have been left without a paddle. Our 11 million people have been told we don't matter. I mean, a great example in New York that just happened, they just said that grocery store workers and delivery people are allowed to get the vaccine now and restaurant workers are not included in that, which is obscene and outrageous. So you're telling us that our people's lives who've been feeding the frontline workers since March, we were essential in March, but now we don't matter. I mean, things like that should not be allowed to stand. And I hope that all New Yorkers, and frankly, across the country, wherever you live, really keeping an ear to the drum and spreading it to your community that this is not acceptable. That is not acceptable to say that a grocery store worker and a delivery worker is not on par with a restaurant worker. I mean, that's just despicable. So I do think it's about advocacy, speaking out, donating where you can, and and thinking about your local independent restaurant when you're doing anything both personal and professional. Awesome. And what's next for you or do you not know yet? We've got a lot of things that we're working on. So we we always had a marketplace as ironically again before everyone sort of pivoted that way. We always had a marketplace as part of Westbourne in the corner of the restaurant where we featured independent makers. We made house provisions um, and prepared foods and so we've now brought that online. So westborn.com now has um, an online general store. Uh, we're shipping nationwide, which has been really fun. And we're working on a whole new line of, of things through that e-commerce platform. Our events and catering is still uh, alive and well and very active. So we've been doing a lot of brand work, virtual events, cooking classes. Some people are doing things in person. So we've been doing some in-person catering but that's been really nice to sort of keep our community close in that way. Um, and then we've got a couple of things uh, up our sleeve that we're working on for this year. So, you know, like I said, we, we are taking a different route there, but we are, are still dreaming our bigger dream. I love it. Well, I have no doubt you will come back fierce and furious, fast and furious. <laughs> well, this has been awesome having you. If there's one piece of advice you'd like to leave my listeners with, um, either something you've learned or, you know, something that someone has told you, I'd love for you to share it. Yeah, I guess two. One is mine and one is someone else's. Mine is really, if you don't believe in yourself, who else will? And I really, really genuinely take that to heart and remind myself every day. You have to stop second guessing and questioning yourself. And you really, you can't ask anyone to follow if you don't really have faith in it. And and again, you know, you have to be your biggest cheerleader and your biggest advocate no one's ever going to do it for you. And then second is, I mean, Shoe Dog is by far one of my favorite books. I absolutely love Phil Knight and what he's created with Nike. And and really, I remind myself every day, just do it, truly. And as cheesy as that sounds, you know, I, I tell my team all the time, you want to do something, go do it. Don't put off for tomorrow what you could do today. Don't hold back. You want to learn a new skill, go put yourself in a class. Go ask a friend to teach you. And you have to constantly be learning and on the chase to progress and to push yourself. And, and that's a daily ritual of saying, you know what, I'm not going to not do that thing I've been thinking about. Like, there's no time like the present. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And just have to remind yourself, just do it, whatever it is for you and whatever your position, even in your family, right? Like, you want to spend some time with your kids, go make the time and go do it. Only you get to control how you spend your time and where you put your efforts. It has to be a daily ritual. I love that. Perfect. Well, thank you. Whatever, Whenever it happens, if it ever happens again, uh, eating at one of your lovely establishments in the near future. Well, we cannot wait to welcome you. And again, you and your team have been so supportive from the start. We're very grateful. 
Thanks for listening, everybody. And don't forget to head over to RebeccaMinkoff.com. Show your love and support for the brand. Buy something for yourself. Buy something for another. And also don't forget to try my new fragrance. Again, it is available at all Nordstrom, Macy's, Scentbirds, and Birchboxes, as well as our site. Thank you.